welcome back to Global Views, your favorite place in the airspace for all things language, communication, and culture. As always, my name is Bree, and I'm your host, and this week, I'm super excited for what we're going to talk about. Uh, we are actually in the middle of a month-long celebration. I'm not sure if you knew that, but this is actually Deaf History Month. Uh, and it doesn't actually fall in a calendar month, so Deaf History Month is between March 13th and April 15th, and that is the time when we acknowledge um, deaf people throughout history who have made, you know, significant changes either for the deaf community or even just in general. Now, I already know what your first question is because it was my first question, and that is why does Deaf History Month start in the middle of a month and end in the middle of a different month? And that is because it's actually bookended by two significant events in deaf history in America. Um, the first being March 13th, which was when the Deaf President Now campaign finally saw its victory. If you're not familiar with the Deaf President Now campaign, Gaidet University, which was the first school of advanced education for specifically deaf and hard of hearing people in the world. Uh, so a pretty landmark institution did not actually have a Deaf President up until the Deaf President Now campaign in the late 20th century. So uh, what happens is deaf students at Gaidet and all around the world essentially hold protests and campaigns and then on March 13th um, Dr. King Jordan is made the first deaf president of Gaudet uh, and he is still currently the president of Gaudet so March 13th is the beginning of Deaf History Month and then is bookmarked um, by April 15th which was when the first school, the first permanent public school for the deaf, which is the American School for the Deaf in Connecticut, opens. So we, uh, it's kind of all about deaf education if you think about it. So we start with, you know, this really incredible inauguration of, uh, you know, the, the first deaf president at Gaudet University, and then we end it with the reminder of the first permanent public school for deaf and hard of hearing students in America opening. So I thought, what else more appropriate than to talk a little bit of deaf history? Let's get into it. Um, I think there's a couple faces that we're all probably familiar with that we, we know of for the most part by now. Um, Helen Keller, who was a prominent deafblind activist uh, in her time. And then uh, Niall DiMarco is probably the next person <laughs> people know in terms of deaf history. And that probably is the summation of the hearing world's uh, comprehension of deaf history. But we are here to fix that today. We have got a couple figures that, whose stories I just absolutely love. Sat down, got to do a little bit of research about all of this. And so there's a couple individuals we are going to get into here today. So the first I want to highlight is Kitty O'Neill. Now, Kitty O'Neill was an American stunt woman and a speed racer in the 1970s. Uh, she read lips. Unfortunately, her mother would not allow her to use sign language when she was younger. Uh, and if anyone is shocked by that, this is a really antiquated but common attitude uh, amongst older generations and truthfully one of the barriers to deaf and hard of, and hard of hearing people um, receiving accessible communication, accessible education, and things like that was this 
kind of negative connotation of using sign language. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding that if your children use sign language, they're never going to talk. There was a lot of misunderstanding earlier on that deaf children would eventually talk and uh, communicate verbally if you didn't give them access to sign language. Um, so Kitty was not allowed to learn sign language. She did not. She read lips. Um, but she did show an aptitude for swim and dive. Now, in 1962, she starts training for the 1964 Tokyo Olympic diving team, uh, but she actually ended up breaking her wrist and contracted spinal meningitis. Now, a lot of people would think this is the end, especially for somebody um, who has already lost their sense of hearing or it does not have their, their sense of hearing to contract spinal meningitis. Most people in this time were not necessarily anticipating to survive that. Kitty does, and she doesn't give up her high, her high adrenaline, fast-paced lifestyle. She's actually quoted as saying, I got sick, so I had to start all over again. And I got bored. I wanted to do something fast. So, in less than five years after she contracts spinal meningitis, effectively ending her Olympic career, uh, or her bid for an Olympic career, she became a stunt driver. Um, she had started stunt driving. She had actually been a stunt double for Linda Carter's Wonder Woman and for uh, Lindsay Wagner's Bionic Woman. So, she had an incredible stunt career that's blossoming at this time. Uh, she also became the fastest woman in the world on December 6, 1976. Now, how did she do this? And this is actually a much more interesting story than even just that fact, because truthfully, I think personally, Kitty O'Neill could have been the fastest person on earth, the fastest human alive, because, listen to this, Marvin and Glass Associates, which was a Chicago toy design company at the time, contracted Kitty to perform this stunt. So this is actually all set up for her in a contract. Of course, it still takes incredible skill, but this is a pretty common thing. Um, so she ends up setting the record at 512.710 miles per hour. Now, to give you a range of comparison, passenger airplanes, so like commercial airlines, generally generally cruise at about 575 miles an hour. Um, a lot of people said that at her fastest, because essentially what they did was take an average of her speed throughout the track that she was running. Um, a lot of people said at some point she was hitting above 600 miles an hour. So she's flying faster than a commercial jet at that point so kitty breaks his record but here is why i believe she could have been the fastest human on earth back to marvin and glass associates this chicago toy design company who's contracted kitty to do this stunt in addition to kitty's stunt they had actually developed a toy line featuring hal needham and already invested $75,000 in marketing now that's a lot in 1976 they had invested so much in this toy line featuring Hal as the fastest human in the world. Now, it was reported that Needham, Hal, had actually demanded O'Neill be pulled from the driver's seat. And according to several news sources, a public relations representative stated that it would be, quote, degrading for a woman to hold a man's record, unquote. So, there are some big, big structures at play here that seemed like it actually kept Kitty ironically enough limited to only being the fastest woman in the world but she maybe truly could have done something greater had uh, Hal Needham not pushed so vehemently um, had Marvin and Glass Associates not thrown all this money behind this toy line that was anticipated to come out and also been the company that contracted Kitty for her stunt 
So maybe there was some uh, untapped potential there. But regardless, Kitty still went on to become the fastest woman on water as well and the fastest quarter mile traveled in history in a rocket dragster. Not to mention she broke the world record twice for a high fall in less than a year. What's a high fall? A high fall is when a stunt double um, is fall essentially doing a fall off a bridge, off a building, off of some kind of structure. You've seen it in movies a thousand times. So in Kitty's stunt doubling career, not only did she break all of these fastest women in the world, fastest person on water, fastest quarter, quarter mile, all of those things, but she also broke records in her career field, which was stunt doubling for, uh, she actually broke the record by jumping off of, I forget which hotel it was, but she jumped off of a, ho a hotel, which broke the first record. And then in less than a year, she had broken her own record again. So uh, that spinal meningitis didn't really keep her down. Now, unfortunately, Kitty did pass away in November of 2018 with pneumonia, but it seems like a wonderful life to live, a highly accomplished life lived. Uh, and she actually, I think she got a sense of this herself in her own life, which is great. She's quoted as saying, deaf people can do anything, never give up. When I was 18, I was told I couldn't get a job because I was deaf, but I said someday I'm going to be famous in sports to show them I can do anything. And well, Kitty, you did it. She absolutely did it. So that's Kitty O'Neill. She's one of my favorite figures that I got to read about and find out about in this research. Now, another lesser-known deaf history figure is Leroy Colombo. Now, Leroy Colombo, I had a lot of fun uh, learning about Leroy Colombo, too. So, Leroy was actually a lifeguard in Galveston, Texas, and he set a record for saving 907 lives. That's a lot of lives, even for somebody whose job it is to save lives. So Leroy was a really well-known lifeguard. Um, he became deaf in childhood at the age of seven from spinal meningitis um, and had actually also lost the ability to walk after he contracted that meningitis. His brothers helped him swim and eventually regained the ability to walk. So he became a lifeguard in 1923. So at this point, he's already overcome quite a significant amount, overcoming the loss of, uh, of use of your limbs, um, especially for a, a young child is insane, but that sibling bond is like nothing else. So by 1923, he becomes a lifeguard. Um, and this is what he kind of does for his whole life, which is very strange. You know, when you think of a historical figure, you think of somebody who achieves greatness. And then after that greatness is achieved, they kind of step into a new realm of recognition, uh, maybe, a, you know, a, a new kind of lifestyle. But from everything I found on Leroy, it seems like he was just this really incredibly talented lifeguard who uh, wanted to be a lifeguard and live in his community in Galveston and see all the people that he knew and, and kind of just continue that really nice existence. So he breaks a world record book, like I said, by saving 907 lives. He has all kinds of incredible feats that happen while he's this lifeguard. One of them includes uh, one time when he plunges through burning oil to save lives of crewmen from a tugboat that had burst into flames in 1928. Uh, so that's just five years into his lifeguard career, but he saves an entire tugboat crew from a burning ship as a beach lifeguard. That's 
crazy. And what's really cool is since Leroy was such a community figure in some of this research, um, I saw comments from people who knew him personally, whose family knew him personally, who had seen him growing up um, and kind of just exchanging, you know, really casual stories about who he was as a person. It seems like he was a, a pretty quiet, out of the way person. Um, a lot of people described him as really just a good guy. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people described him helping them learn how to swim when they were kids. Um, so Leroy Colombo, somebody, like I said, maybe not so famous in deaf history, but somebody definitely worth noting. And I believe, I believe Gaudet actually has a pool named after Leroy. Um, I'll have to, maybe I'll have to double check on that. But yeah, just a really wonderful figure that I think we should talk a little bit more about. So good on Leroy. Now this next one, I'm not sure how there's not already a movie about this. Uh, maybe there is, and it's completely gone over my head, but there should be. So let's talk about Roger Young. Now, I will mark this disclaimer. Roger wasn't technically deaf. He was hard of hearing, um, but he did have profound hearing loss. So if you search for deaf history, he's kind of included in the bunch, but it is considered courteous to note exactly, you know, if somebody is deaf or hard of hearing or not. So, Roger Young is a World War II veteran, a World War II veteran who essentially faked his hearing test at that. So, how does this play out? What happens here? I will tell you. Roger Young actually loses his hearing much later in life when he's a teenager. He is playing a basketball game and actually essentially ricochets off of the pavement during this game. Uh, and that is what leads to Roger Young's hearing loss. Um, now, he doesn't lose all of his hearing right away. It seems pretty gradual. He does eventually end up dropping out of high school, though, um, just because he's not able to receive instruction the way he was before. Unfortunately, at this time, there's not a whole lot of access in the public education system for deaf, hard of hearing, blind, really um, anyone with any disability there's not a whole lot of accommodations available. So learning is very hard. Being in a in a traditional classroom is obviously difficult if you can't hear anything. There's no interpreter. There's there's nothing available of that nature. Um, so Roger ends up dropping out. He joins the Ohio National Guard. And when he joins, I think he actually joins in 1939, which in the U.S. at that time was considered a time of peace. Uh, so he thought the Ohio National Guard would be a pretty easy route for him to go. Um, and then, of course, we know World War II comes. Uh, he is activated into the U.S. military. And he is actually shipped out to the island of New Georgia um, in the South Pacific to aid the Allies. Now, he does really well in his military career. And I know you're wondering, how did this young man with uh, hearing loss end up in the military? It's rumored that he actually faked his hearing test. Um, I'm not sure how, but that it was... Um, it, it was, uh, you know, essentially, I don't want to say forged or anything like that, but uh, he kind of BS his way through his hearing test um, and ended up getting accepted into the Ohio National Guard. Does really well for himself in service, uh, eventually gets promoted to sergeant and stays in that position for a significant amount of time. And then when he is sent to the island of New Georgia, um, he learns of a plan from his command, um, basically a 
I don't know what they're called, um, a plan from his command to take control of the Munda airstrip. Now, this is a, a huge operation, and Young actually asks to be demoted to private for this. Uh, he kind of lets it out about his hearing. He says he can take care of himself, but he doesn't want to be responsible for other lives if he mishears an order to retreat um, or something of that nature. He doesn't want to put his other uh, soldiers in danger. So he comes clean about his hearing abilities. He asks to be demoted. Uh, his command actually doesn't believe him at first. He thinks he's trying to get out of it. Um, but then eventually, very quickly, it is easy to see that Roger Young really does have difficulty hearing. His request is granted and he is demoted to private for this mission. Now, he still goes on the mission. And this is where we reach the moment why I cannot understand why there's not a movie about Roger Young. Because this scene is something else. He sent out on this mission with his platoon to the Munda airstrip to try and gain control of it. During this mission, they come under heavy machine gun fire. Um, they're kind of in the forest, finding some, some shelter behind trees. But they're kind of in a very compromising position where it would be dangerous to advance and it would be dangerous to retreat. Um, because really, the, the threat is everywhere. So the sergeant of this mission gives an order to retreat, uh, and the odds are still not looking good. Now, this is where Roger Young comes in. It is reported that this sergeant gives the order to retreat, and Roger actually looked at the sergeant and said, I'm sorry, sir, but you know I don't hear very well. Now, then he takes off from behind the trees towards the machine gun fire, lets off a grenade that actually ends up killing all five men shooting at them. Roger does die of his own wounds, clearly. I mean, I, I think that he knew that that was coming. Um, but this allows the rest of his unit to escape without any further loss of life. Talk about, oh my gosh, brave, uh, courageous, sacrificial. Um, I mean, this is... The whole reason why he he tells his commander that he doesn't want to be a sergeant is because he's so concerned about the lives of others. So it's, I mean, it's clear from the get go that he went into this mission concerned about the lives of the soldiers that he was going in with. And that was his number one priority. And we see that even up and through his death. And I just love that cheeky line that I'm sorry, sir, but you know, I don't hear very well. Um, that is so tongue-in-cheek and I love it and I do think there should be a movie about it mostly because what a great line and nobody had to write it um <laughs> now Roger Young is awarded a posthumous medal of honor which is the highest honor you can receive um in the U.S. military and so he is awarded properly for that but yes that is Roger Young our hard of hearing World War II vet with as much bravery and courage as any able-bodied, fully hearing veteran you could meet. So those are kind of our three major historical figures we're going to be talking about for Deaf History Month on this podcast. Uh, we are probably going to post about more ones that we don't mention here on our social media, so be sure you're following us um, on Instagram. We are at Global Views Show on Instagram. We are at Global Views Show on Twitter. And we are the Global Views Podcast on Facebook. So be sure you're following us on our pages. 
and we will bring you some more incredible Deaf History Month information. Uh, but before we go, we do have two honorable mentions that I just want to throw out there as names because they are actually Detroit natives. They are Detroit locals and they certainly, certainly are included in Deaf History Month. Uh, the first I want to talk about is Tanya Wyatt Dennis. So Tanya Wyatt Dennis um, is the first black deaf hospice medical social worker, the first black deaf school social worker to work for Detroit Public Schools, which is a huge school district and huge need of things like that. So incredible. And she is the first to graduate from Wayne State University's social worker program in 1997 with a master's in social work. Quite literally a local legend um, making history at Wayne State, making history in her fields, in numerous fields, which is incredible because that kind of representation is needed so greatly in all of those arenas. So um, Tanya, hats off to you. Even though you are, your life is far from history at this point, it is certainly pointing to one day be considered as such. Uh, and then the second, the last person I want to give a shout out to is Andrew Foster, who is also a Detroit local. He is the first black deaf graduate from Gallaudet University, which, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, is the first university in the world for deaf students. Andrew Foster graduates from there, from Detroit, um, and he goes into education. And so... We give a shout out to our two Detroit local legends for Deaf History Month and to all the other lesser known figures we covered today. Kitty, Leroy, Roger, we remember you and we are so glad for the lives that you lived. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this journey for Death History Month. Like I said, be sure you're following our social media to come celebrate with us all month long. We'll be posting more fun facts, uh, things about different figures in Deaf history, all kinds of things. And after Deaf History Month's over, the party will keep going on. We'll have giveaways, discussions, conversations. You can already always keep up. If, if 15 to 25 minutes a week is just not enough for you, you can always find more of us online. So thank you so much for hanging out with me this week and we'll see you next Friday.